Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Out of the Cold, the podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. So today we're exploring the unsolved 1980 murder of Cheryl Springfield. So it's Christmas time in Fort Worth, and like many others, my house is decked out in Christmas decorations. They went up the second Thanksgiving was over. Now I love Christmas. It's meaning, celebrations, and traditions. At our house on Christmas Eve, after making sure our three kids are asleep, my husband and I will pop open some champagne and play Christmas music while we wrap up and assemble all those last minute gifts. But this December, I find myself thinking about families that are haunted by the holidays and memories of a dark Christmas. Families like that of Cheryl Springfield, who will always remember December 25th as the day the 21-year-old mother was found murdered inside her Fort Worth home, near the Christmas tree, down the hall from where her two-year-old son and 10-month-old niece slept. Cheryl had been a brown-haired, gray, hazel-eyed beauty. Born in Breckenridge, an oil town roughly two hours west of Fort Worth, She was the baby of the family. She had one sister, Jan, who was 18 months older. The girl's biological father had left when they were very young. They never really knew him, Jan says. But their mother, Patricia Tunnell, or Pat as many called her, bravely took on the task of raising two young girls on her own. She moved them to the city, settling in a house in South Fort Worth. And when Jan was seven and Cheryl was five, Pat met a man named J.C. Holmes. Though the two would never marry, he would become her partner for life, taking on a fatherly role to the girls. In Cheryl's obituary, he'd even be listed as her stepfather. You're talking about a man that came in and took on two girls that were not pleasant and raised them. And he would say, they're my daughters by choice. And he said, that's why I had no hair. We were a mess. Is often the case when siblings are born close together. Jan and Cheryl's relationship was somewhat complicated. Uh, were you and your sister close? No. Yes. No. We fought a lot. I mean, constantly. But I loved her. The sisters' fights were epic. They bickered. They stole each other's clothes. Jan remembers Cheryl, or Sissy as she calls her, once ratting her out to their mom after catching her smoking in the bathroom. But Jan got her revenge. Later, she walloped her sister with a desk phone before hiding in a locked bathroom until their mother got home. Well, you know how when when you're siblings and you fight and then you outgrow it and you become friends? We never got to do that. 
Now, when the girls were in middle school, Pat decided the family needed a change of pace. So she moved the family to Crowley, south of Fort Worth, a town with a slower pace. She just thought a small town would be healthier for us. You're taking two young girls coming from south side of Fort Worth and a population of 2,662 people when we got there, and there was a dog asleep in the middle of Main Street. So we were like, really? <laughs> but Cheryl fit in well in Crowley. She got good grades and later earned a spot on the Talonettes, the drill team at Crowley High School that performed at halftime during football games. And I can still remember, you know, <clears throat> her in the living room doing her dance with her white gloves on to that song, My Girl and me walking by going, just shaking my head like, are you kidding me or what? So it was while living in Crowley that Cheryl, then just a teenager, caught word from a friend about a new guy working at the Quickways convenience store. She decided to check him out. Scott Springfield, with his wavy long blonde hair, was usually based at a Quickway in Fort Worth, but had been asked to fill in at the Crowley location. First time I saw her, her and her mom came in, her right leg was in a cast, as it, <laughs> you had broken her leg. And I just looked over and said, oh, nice leg, referring to her left one, you know, that was it. That's the first time I met her. It would be some time later before their paths would cross again, this time at the popular bar Spencer's Corner, not far from TCU. But this time, Cheryl was 17. I think I remember asking, how'd you get in here? You, you know, and you, you know, so. <laughs> and I don't know if Jan knew someone at the door that, just slid on in. Yeah. Okay. We kind of started seeing each other after that. Scott was quickly taken by Cheryl. She was kind and sweet, never spoke bad of anyone. And they would marry in September 1977, a week before Cheryl's 18th birthday, at a Baptist church in Crowley. Though pregnant at the time, Scott says Cheryl was not yet showing in her white wedding dress. Scott's former roommate, Mark, served as the best man, Jan as Cheryl's maid of honor. So after the wedding, the newlyweds smeared cake in each other's faces in the reception hall and later drove off in Scott's 1969 Ford Mustang. His best man had stolen the window cranks as a prank. And I didn't have air conditioning, so we had to drive from there to Fort Worth sweating. Oh. I was in you know, my suit, he was in a wedding dress, and they couldn't go the windows down. Uh -huh. so I think I probably spent half the drive cussing out Mark. Scott's little sister, Cindy, loved her new sister-in-law. She says Cheryl felt like a real sister to her. She would be there for her when Cindy and Scott's parents later divorced. Uh, I was going through a hard time, and I, I just gravitated towards her, and she was very, very nice to me, you know, very welcoming. Just, come on, you know, we would go. We, she'd take me everywhere with them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what'd, your brother, what'd your brother think of that? Oh, well, he didn't care. <laughs> if you knew Scott, my brother, he just, he didn't care. If she was happy, he was happy. But there were strains on the marriage. I mean, adjusting to married life can be tough enough for anybody. But that Cheryl and Scott were so young and would quickly become parents only made that transition more difficult. It was a big adjustment, you know, being we're married, you know. I was under the impression, I knew I wasn't going to see my friends. I wasn't going to be out every weekend anymore. But every now and then I might go out, which he was thinking, eh, once a year you can see him. And I was like, no, I'm going to see him more than once a year. And we kind of argued over that a bit. So Scott was working for Radio Shack as an extruder operator, a fancy name for the person who puts the jackets on wiring. Cheryl, who'd been working at Pizza Inn when they began dating, later became a manager at a hamburger joint called the Chuck Wagon. They lived paycheck to paycheck and never seemed to have enough money. 
That was never more evident than on February 2nd, 1978, the day their son, Scott Allen, decided to make an early entrance into the world. I was working 7 to 11, you know, 11 at night, and I got home, and it was, the weather was terrible. There was ice and stuff, and she wasn't due yet, but she started complaining her stomach was bothering her. And I think she called the hospital, they said, well, you better get on in. Because Cheryl had been pregnant when they married, Scott couldn't add his wife to his health insurance. They would have to pay for the birth out of pocket. And on the way to John Peter Smith Hospital that night, Scott had spent the last few dollars in his pocket putting gas in the car. We got to the hospital, that's why we chose Peter Smith. And they took her in, I sat in the waiting room because they wouldn't take her up to the delivery room till I paid an emergency room fee. And I had to call her mother to come from Crowley. Wow, I didn't know they like did. like a $25 it. emergency room fee. Oh, wow. And I remember sitting there in the emergency room, and there was a guy sitting next to him with a towel wrapped around his foot, and he'd shot himself in the foot, and he was waiting on someone to bring him the $25 emergency room fee. God. I mean, they ensured he wasn't going to bleed to death. You know, like I said, they took Cheryl to the back, but, you know, nothing was really going to be done until we got that money. Now, back then, fathers weren't allowed in the delivery room. So Scott wandered the hospital hallways, and he came across the hospital's blood donation center. I got bored. I was giving blood when he was born. I gave some blood, you know, maybe take it off the bill or something. And uh, I got up there, and Pat said, she had it. And oh, crap. Scott said Cheryl adjusted well to motherhood. He tried to be more responsible, cutting down on the marijuana he sometimes smoked. But his longing for freedom still gnawed at him, and the couple would divorce before reaching their third wedding anniversary. It was all my fault. I thought I was unhappy. I mean, I don't know what made me think, you know. Honestly, we, you know, there wasn't a lot of money, and I just thought I was unhappy. All I did was get up, go to work, come home, get up, go to work, come home, which is probably what I did when I was single, but at least I had a little more money and could go somewhere if I wanted to. <laughs> and so the divorce was my idea. It's not that I didn't love her anymore. And I, actually, I was still, I thought I was unhappy. And I just don't know. I just got kind of tired of my husband and father. Cheryl didn't want to get a divorce, but she didn't contest it. Heck, she didn't even hire a lawyer like Scott had. The divorce sailed through the courts, made official on August 13, 1980. Cheryl got custody of Scott Allen, but gave Scott an open pass to visit his son whenever he wanted. And wasn't long after that, I started thinking, Maybe I wasn't as unhappy as I thought, but, <laughs> but yeah. You kind of started regretting it? Yeah, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. After their split, Cheryl and Scott Allen had moved in for a short time with her mother and Crowley. But soon the mother and son relocated, moving in with Cindy, Scott's little sister, at the four-bedroom house on Whittier where Cindy lived with her infant daughter, Christy. Cindy and Scott's parents still owned the house, but had vacated it after their own breakup. And it wouldn't be long before the two women and their kids would be joined by two more roommates, 16-year-old Nancy Tucker and her 17-year-old best friend Donna. Donna and Cindy had worked together at a convenience store. So each young woman had their own room. Scott Allen slept in his mother's room and baby Christy with Cindy. Nancy said the four roommates were not close friends, but she says they hung out together almost nightly, drinking at their favorite hangouts, Spencer's Palace, or another bar known as London Lou's, and smoking pot. She summarized the four young women as, quote unquote, just a bunch of displaced people. The whole time that we lived there, we were all partying, drinking heavily, using drugs, just kind of whatever came along. At that point, the only person who had been in the house was Cindy. 
the, the other three of us had never had men in the house, but all three of us had met men out and had just been part of that lifestyle. Scott would occasionally watch Scott Allen at the house as his now ex-wife enjoyed the perks of single life. Though Nancy says they didn't party at home, the house was well lived in, trashed really, with bags of clothes and empty fast food containers strewn about. Nancy says only her and Donna's room stayed clean. That December, a small artificial Christmas tree had been set up in the home's cluttered living room. The Christmas plans for the year had been unusual. Whereas usually Cheryl and her sister Jan would always have Christmas morning at their mother's house in Crowley, this year, 1980, Jan wasn't even in Texas. She was spending time in California with friends. So this particular year, the family celebration without Jan would take place on Christmas Eve. There was a big holiday meal and opening of gifts. Jan says her mom apparently tried to talk Cheryl into staying the night in Crowley with Scott Allen, but Cheryl declined. She wanted to go home and have the Santa Claus thing for Scotty in the morning, and Scott was going to come over that morning and bring whatever he had. So Pat Tunnell dropped off her youngest daughter and grandson at the house on Whittier Street about 10 p.m. The house was quiet. Nancy and Donna weren't there. They'd gone to spend the holiday at Nancy's parents' house. Cindy would go out that night, too, leaving Cheryl to watch over baby Christy. Scott had spent Christmas Eve night at his mom's. His car, then a 1974 Roadrunner, was running on fumes, so his mother had picked him up that night and took him back to the house he was sharing with his friend Mark and Mark's girlfriend, Severia. Sometime around midnight or shortly thereafter, he and Cheryl talked by phone to finalize their morning plans. He can still remember he was eating a pot pie while they briefly chatted and telling her he'd be by the house around 6 a.m. Hours later, lugging a big wheel he'd bought for his son, Scott began the approximately five-block walk to the house on Whittier, hiking down the railroad tracks and along the outskirts of Kellis Park. When I get to the house, and I still have a key, you know, at my mom's house, I have a key. And I stuck the key in and turned, you know, went in. And I don't really, you know, cops ask me what's the door lock is it? I don't really know. I stuck my key in and turned, you know. I don't know if it was locked or not. I didn't try it, you know, so. And I walked in. We walked straight in and there was a sofa there, a Christmas tree there, and I saw her lying there. But I didn't know it was her at first. Because she'd been hit a few, you know, and the other girls, I didn't know what they looked like either. And I thought, who's the drunk girl laying on the floor? You know, naked drunk girl. And I could hear Scott Allen crying. So I went back to his room, and he was sitting up in bed, you know, crying. And I didn't see her. And that's when I thought, oh, shit. Scott returned to the living room to verify what his gut was already telling him, that it was Cheryl he'd seen in the living room. Even with the passing of 37 years, Tears still come to Scott's eyes as he forces himself to relive what he saw next. I got close enough to her eyes or something wrapped around her throat, you know. And, and I, I know I touched it. I thought, you know, there, you know, don't touch nothing. Scott says he rushed back to Cheryl's bedroom where his son was still crying and made a panicked series of phone calls. He doesn't remember the order, but he called for an ambulance, still wanting to believe that Cheryl could be helped his mother, Cheryl's mother, and then the couple he was living with, asking them to come get little Scott Allen. Mark and Silveria were the first ones there, you know, just a few blocks away. And Mark covered Cheryl up. You know. 
So where are you? Got Scott Allen, got him out of the house, and they went back home. And, you know, then the police show up. And I don't know who got there first. Her mom, my mom, I don't know. I remember uh, being in a police car, I said, if you're my mom, and the cop came out holding Christy. I didn't know she was there. She was in the back bedroom asleep. <laughs> she was, you know, I didn't, didn't even think about anybody else being there. Cindy, Scott's sister, had stayed out all night. She was rushing home Christmas morning, not suspecting anything was wrong. I was freaking out that I was late, and, you know, it was Christmas morning, and, <laughs> you know, we were supposed to... You know, I was supposed to pick up my daughter and go to my mom. But when she arrived at the house on Whittier, police were there. She doesn't remember if it was then that they told her what happened to Cheryl, only that she was assured that the baby was safe and with her mother. And, you know, they wouldn't let me in or anything, but I'm saying, but I live here, you know. They were saying, no, you can't come in. I said, but I live here. Cindy, like her brother before her, would be taken to the police station for questioning. Nancy and Donna, who had been reached at Nancy's parents' house, would also be brought in for interviews. Nancy says she would never sleep another night at the house on Whittier. Relatives would later collect her things for her. Oh no, I was scared to death. Scared to death to go back in that house. It was crazy. You know, here I was 16 years old and I thought I was real good and grown up. Live on my own. I got a job. I got a vehicle. Well, I learned real quick I wasn't a grown-up at all. <laughs> Nancy remembers reporters in TV news vans being camped outside her parents' house for several weeks. She said there were even threatening phone calls from different people made to her house, one that they were able to track to a troubled neighborhood kid who she'd bought pot from before. The others, to her knowledge, were never traced and were scary enough to prompt her mom to send her to live with relatives in San Antonio for a couple of months. What were they saying in the phone calls? Just, you need to keep your mouth shut, we're gonna kill you, you're next. That kind of stuff, yeah. And that's why my mom sent me away. Cheryl's older sister, Jan, had been awakened early Christmas morning by a phone call from her mother, screaming that her sister had been murdered and saying she needed to come home right away. She hopped the first plane that she could from California to Texas. She would never return to California, not even to pick up her stuff from the apartment she was sharing with friends. Her sister's murder left her feeling crazy, she says, and would begin an obsession that she still carries today, finding out who did it. It was Jan who checked in with detectives faithfully. Jan, who even went into a career as a paralegal so she could learn all she could about the legal system and where she could access information. The women's mother, Pat, who died four years ago, had been content to let Jan handle it. She carried her pain deep. Mother never talked about it after she died. She never called the detectives. She never got involved in the case. She never did anything. She let me do it all. I'm sure she cried behind closed doors, but she never, never showed anything. She was, I mean, what do you say? The only thing she ever said was, I dropped her off and I gave her to the arms of a murderer. A funeral was held for Sherilyn Crowley and she was later buried in Breckenridge. Her mother had picked out a cloth-covered light blue casket for her youngest daughter because she thought it made Cheryl look warm. She would also take on the painful task of picking out the clothes that Cheryl would wear. And I remember mother telling me that she went down, she had to buy her a bra. And she was going down there doing it and the lady kept saying, well, you can buy one, get one free. And I, that's the only time I remember she said, she goes, I just looked at her and cried and said, she, she doesn't need another one. 
They dressed Cheryl in blue jeans, a Christmas gift from her stepfather that she'd just opened that Christmas Eve but never got to wear. Jan remembers the thick pancake makeup that the funeral home had used to cover the bruises and scrapes on her sister's face and how she couldn't stop herself from peeking under the blue and white turtleneck shirt her mother had chosen to cover Cheryl's neck. You could see the imprint of the iron cord in her neck. I mean, it was just horrible. I mean, I went, her hair was kind of up in the back and I remember I went to push her hair back and you could feel you know, where they'd put the staples in. And I literally had to lick my finger and she had a chicken pox scar on her temple. And I had to lick my finger and wipe off the makeup and see that chicken pox scar, just like, okay, it's real now. Because she just didn't look like her. It was sad. Jan also remembers Scott placing their wedding rings on her chest. They'd pawned the rings, but Scott somehow got them back. And I promised her, I sat with her that night, and I promised her, I will find who did this. If I have to spend the rest of my life doing it, I'll find who did this. So Fort Worth Homicide Detective Jeremy Roden, who began investigating the unsolved murder case this year, described the crime scene for me recently. When the detectives first got on scene, they found Cheryl uh, lying on the floor she was in the, the main living area of the house. She was close to a baby crib in the Christmas tree. Um, she had been covered by a blanket by family and friends when she was found. Um, her body did have some abrasions and bruises on it that looks like she might have been involved in a struggle. Uh, there was a ligature tied around her neck. News reports at the time would describe the ligature as a sheared off iron cord. There was evidence Cheryl had been sexually assaulted. Now, it's not known if little Scott Allen had witnessed anything that night. He was so young, a little more than a month shy from turning three. But the fact that he was crying when his father arrived at the home makes you wonder if the little boy may have seen something or gone looking for his mom and found her body. Jan, Cheryl's sister, remembers little Scott Allen once remarking that the bad man had put him in bed. You know what I remember is I remember him saying bad, ma bad man hurt mama, but then he also said Santa Claus hurt mama because everybody said Santa Claus was coming to see him that next day, so he's just a baby. Police never attempted to interview the boy. Back then, Roden says, investigators rarely even tried to interview young kids. Remember, it was 1980, and DNA was also not yet a tool for criminal investigations. Back then, the best they could do was blood typing, like whether the blood was type O or type AB. Roden said investigators' primary focus was looking for possible fingerprints of the killer. They collected a lot of fingerprints out of the house. Uh, they did collect some items, physical evidence, out of the house. The problem there is, though, that there were four young ladies living in the house, and they had friends and boyfriends and an untold number of people that came in and out of that house. So obviously DNA is now a great forensic tool in helping investigators identify suspects. And it's routine for police departments to sift through cold cases looking for evidence that can be tested now. But because DNA wasn't even on the mind of investigators back then, physical evidence wasn't always collected and preserved in a manner that lends itself to be tested. Let's say in 1975 you had a homicide that took place where someone was beaten with a baseball bat. Okay. In 1975, they would have collected the baseball bat, put a tag on it, and put it in the property room. Right. It wouldn't have been protected from other outside influences or anything like that. Chances are. 
in, in, in most cases, that's what would have happened because the thought process for them at that time would not have been, we can get microscopic biological evidence off of this baseball bat. Um, if today the same offense happened and the baseball bat was lying there, the crime scene officer would collect that bat and would secure it in a manner such that it could be tested later for DNA. In Cheryl's case, they were able to conduct testing on some of the evidence collected at the crime scene in 1980, like clothing, which did uncover some DNA, but most of it belonged to Cheryl. And again, because of the amount of people in and out of the home, it's hard to know whether the other DNA recovered even belonged to the killer. And the problem is, is because there, there doesn't appear to have been an item introduced into the house that was used to commit the murder, then that item was accessible to anyone who had been into that house prior to that. So although the DNA that's found could be used to give us a very likely suspect, it may not be the only smoking gun involved in the investigation. Roden is also trying to track down some neighbors who had reported to police in 1980 seeing Cheryl talking or yelling at an unknown man from the front steps of the house around 2 a.m. that Christmas morning. Problem is, the case file includes no description of that man, nor statements from these so-called witnesses or even the neighbors' names. I still don't know who those neighbors are. I would like to be able to meet with them and talk with them. Um, the most information that I have is that they were possibly seminary students. Roden says there's indications that these neighbors had only been renting making property records useless unless the homeowner back then kept meticulous notes on renters from almost four decades ago. Pretty unlikely. Now, all armchair detectives know, often when a woman is murdered, you need look no further than her husband, her boyfriend, or the ex for the killer. And that's why police routinely work to clear those people first before casting a wider net. Scott says police were initially very civil to him. He answered all their questions about finding Cheryl. He would even later take two polygraphs, passing them both. He never felt like a suspect, at least not until the original investigator moved on and the case was reassigned. There was another detective who took it over. And he called me one day and said he was, you know, just taking over the case. He wants to get new statements from everybody. And to the best of my knowledge, I'm the only one he called. You know, I don't think he ever called Markins Murray again. They were the ones, you know. Or anybody and I go downtown fine and this is where I start getting mad because you know I do the polygraph all that and I'm there for two hours and I'm listening to him and some little blonde guy from the DA's office telling me how I did it you know and so I yell back at him I start yelling you know and they go see you're showing us you can get mad well you sit here for an hour being told you did something you didn't do see if you don't get mad you know and I finally realized, I didn't do anything, I'm leaving. And they said, okay, well, if we want you, we'll come get you. And I never heard from him since. Roden said Scott was investigated, but ultimately eliminated as a suspect. Everyone, including police officers, always have to look at the ex-husband as to whether they're a suspect, especially with the divorce being so recent. Um, by all accounts, it appears the relationship was amicable. Um, there's no glaring hot spots that draw our attention to issues that they were having right at that point in time. I'm sure there were fights and disagreements, but nothing glaring at that point. Uh, the detectives at the time were able to use different forensic tests and things that they could do with the technology that they had, as well as interviews and other things, and they were able to exclude Scott as a suspect. 
Jan knew Scott was innocent, but had no idea who would want to kill her sister. So you, you don't know what to think, and you don't trust anybody. I mean, it could be the person standing behind you at Walmart. It could be somebody up there hugging you and telling you, oh, I'm so sorry she's gone. I mean, you don't know who it is. Desperate to fulfill the promise she'd made, Jan filed open records requests to get the police report. She talked to ex-detectives. She looked at the crime scene and autopsy photos and even got a copy of the autopsy using medical books and talking to different people to try to learn how long it would have taken for her sister to lose consciousness. I wanted to know if she suffered and how long she suffered. Now, some suspects would emerge, but were usually cleared after investigation. She says a detective once told her that even Henry Lee Lucas, the infamous serial killer, had confessed to Cheryl's murder, but had given investigators false information, including that Cheryl had been wearing a black nightie. Two men that weren't on Jan's radar at that time, but that had caught investigators' attention not long after Cheryl's murder, had connections to Cindy, Scott's sister. The father of her daughter, Ricky Brothers, was one. Cindy says he was abusive to her, and though she was technically married to him at the time of Cheryl's death, their relationship was over. Police looked into him, but never found anything to tie him to the crime. He has since committed suicide. But it was another man whom Cindy had previously dated that detectives seemed especially intrigued by. They kept asking me about a man that I knew, uh, Barry Kelly. You know, they kept asking me about him, and because him and Cheryl didn't get along. And, you know, I told them everything I knew about him. They had met by phone through a mutual friend when Cindy was around 14 or 15. Barry was a few years older and had already been in trouble with the law. Cindy jokes with his red hair and freckles. He wasn't particularly cute, but there was something about him that clicked. He was kind of a bad boy, you know? Is that what you were attracted to back in those days? I, I think so. So Cindy dated Barry for a time. He'd come by the house on Whittier when she was still living there with her parents. Big Brother Scott never thought much of him, but it didn't really matter because Barry wouldn't be around for too long. In 1977, Barry went away to prison for burglary. But when he gets out in July 1980, it's not long before he starts trying to get back in touch with Cindy. Cindy, at this point, is now living again at the home on Whittier, this time with Cheryl. I, I don't know that they ever met face to face. I can't remember them ever meeting. Um, you know, now I remember him calling the house and her answering the phone and they just didn't get along at all over the phone. And he was kind of obnoxious, you know, he'd keep calling. If I wasn't there, he'd keep calling. And yeah, I think they had a little problem over the phone. So after Cheryl's murder, Scott and other members of his family immediately began to wonder if Barry or Cindy's other ex may have had something to do with it. Did Ricky drop by to see his daughter and become enraged when Cheryl wouldn't let him? Did Barry come by to see Cindy, finding Cheryl instead, and an argument broke out? Through the years since that time, did you still always suspect that those I one? I there was one of them, yeah. Even today, you still suspect that? Mm-hmm. Do you? Barry more than Ricky, because Ricky was kind of a weaselly little turd, I think. Cheryl could have taken him, really. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, he had a little man syndrome. He wasn't that big, but he talked loud, you know, just because he was, you know, 5'5", five, five, it talked like he was 6'5", you know, so, but. Why Barry yeah. Moore? So, so obviously, I see why yeah, you don't think. Yeah, it's, he, he, you know, he just seemed more like the type that it wouldn't bother him to do something like that, you know. 
have you ever met someone you just you just know there's nothing good about them there's nothing honest about them you know if you have anything to do with him it's not going to come out good and that's just what i got out of him you know cindy for one didn't believe barry had killed cheryl because hurting cheryl someone who meant so much to cindy would have meant hurting her and it sounds so stupid, but, you know, keep in mind, I was young. I was stupid. Uh, Barry loved me, and he did. And I think he probably still does. And I just don't think he would do that. I, you know, that my mind was Barry wouldn't do this to me. He just wouldn't. But Cindy said the suspicions by her brother and other family members and her refusal to believe them led to a rift among her and other family members. Cheryl's murder pushed her to drink and do more drugs. Her mother, already taking on the primary task of raising Scott Allen, ended up raising Cindy's daughter, Christy, too. So while Barry wouldn't be arrested in Cheryl's case, he would end up behind bars less than a month after her murder. Court records and old newspaper clips tell the tale of a several-day crime spree by the then 21-year-old Barry how he broke into a North Richland Hills home on January 11, 1981, stealing three purses and kidnapping at knife point a 21-year-old Indianapolis woman who had been at the house visiting family. He took her out the back door and down the street into someone else's backyard, then pushed her to the ground. But hearing a car's motor nearby, the woman screamed and a spooked Barry ran off. So Barry gets picked up two days later by North Richland Hills police. And while he's being questioned in the kidnapping, he suddenly grabs an ashtray from a table and smashes it into the detective's head and escapes. Two days later, Barry is riding a stolen motorcycle when he is rear-ended by a car in Cedar Hill. Cedar Hill police respond to the wreck, run Barry's name, and learn he's a wanted man. So Barry is placed in Tarrant County Jail. And even in jail, he's still making headlines. He joins a handful of inmates in a hunger strike. He tells jailers he'd rather starve to death than return to prison. And he's got a goal. He tells deputies he wants to go 66 days without food, just like Bobby Sands, an IRA gorilla who had recently died in a British prison after lapsing into a coma after a 66-day food strike. In the end, Barry's hunger strike would only last 16 days. Apparently, he was unable to resist the jail's fried chicken. So in June 1981, Barry pleads guilty to assaulting the North Richland Hills police officer in exchange for 15 years in prison and to the burglary for a 10-year sentence. As part of the plea, prosecutors agree not to prosecute him for the Indianapolis woman's kidnapping. From prison four years later, Barry writes a letter to the judge who had presided over the case, claiming he'd been bullied into taking the plea by his attorney. He writes that he was dealing with mental disorder issues while jailed, and it hit the detective with the ashtray in self-defense because he says the detective was threatening him. He wants the judge to write him a letter recommending his sentence be commuted. It wasn't, but in November 1986, just a couple days before Thanksgiving, Barry is released on parole. He comes back to Fort Worth, and it's not long before he finds Cindy again. I was walking down the street uh, going to the store and he pulled up in a car and said, hey. And I said, oh, wow, hey, <laughs> you know. It, it was kind of, he found me. They began dating again, and on February 11, 1987, they get married. 
No fancy wedding or anything. They just went down to the courthouse, Cindy says. Cindy didn't even tell her family until sometime after the nuptials. She says her drug addiction had already left her somewhat estranged from her family. And as you can probably imagine, her news was not met with congratulations. I was in and out of their lives, but when they found out I married Barry, they, <laughs> you know, <laughs> said, well, you can't come here anymore, <laughs> you know, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, I was told, you can't come here anymore. So Cindy's marriage to Barry would be short-lived, not even lasting a year. When I talked to Cindy recently, she was quick to tell me that Barry never abused her. But then the more we talked, she described things that he'd done to her during their short marriage that honestly, I'm not sure what else you would call it. He never hit me or was anything like that. But he's always just, you know, a little scary. Now I have a tattoo on my hand that he put on there with his initials. And I didn't want him to do that, but he did it. And he had a gun. I don't remember where he got the gun. And we were staying in a hotel on Jacksboro Highway. Remember that? And I don't know where he got the gun, but he had it. And he was, and he tattooed my hand. And there was nothing I could do about it. It was at gunpoint. You know, it was, the gun was right there. You know, was it pointed at me once or twice? Yes. Was I ever really afraid he was going to shoot me? No. But, you know, I was going to let him do what he was going to do. Wow. You know, it, oh, man, it, you know, it, it was just a, a volatile situation. That night, Cindy says she escaped out a window after Barry fell asleep. She poured peroxide on the tattoo, which Barry had created using a string wrapped around a needle and ink from a pen. She thought she could somehow boil it away, but it didn't work. The initials BK and a crudely drawn star are still visible on her hand today. Why was he so insistent that he do this to you? Did he did he give you any kind of reason? He loved me. So was this his way of branding you and marking yeah. you as his? Yeah. Wow. And it was always, you know, Cindy, it's, you're mine. I love you. And that's why, you know, when any, and I knew he loved me in his way, you know, and... That's why I just never thought that he did that. But, you know, I guess maybe he did. I don't know. So Cindy said it would take Barry giving her hepatitis to prompt her to finally leave him. She moved back in with her mama and said she was pretty much quarantined in a back bedroom. Barry kept trying to come over and see her, but her family wouldn't let him. And I wasn't going out of the house at all. Because, you know, it... it it, I was afraid of him. Okay. And I went to the store up on uh, Seminary Drive with my friend one night, and he grabbed me, literally grabbed me and threw me in the car, in his car, and he hit two cars leaving that parking lot. And, and he kidnapped me. You know, he took me. A police spokeswoman would later give details about the kidnapping in a Star-Telegram article. Though the article didn't identify Cindy by name, only referring to her as a 25-year-old acquaintance of Barry's. It talked about how Barry, armed with a knife, took the woman to a wooded area, held her against her will, and terrorized her for hours. The spokeswoman said he then drove around with her until she persuaded him to tell the police about the car accident, and they flagged down some officers. 
Cindy says she convinced the officers she'd been taken against her will, so they drove her to a store to call her mother. Barry was arrested the next day for aggravated kidnapping. The incident would be the last straw for Cindy. She would file for divorce from Barry. But what Cindy didn't know then is that in the days both before and after her own kidnapping, a different Fort Worth crime was making headlines, a murder for which her soon-to-be ex-husband would eventually be accused. Coming up next on Out of the Cold, the 1987 strangulation death of a 63-year-old widow cast new suspicion on a man some family members already suspected was behind the Christmas murder of Cheryl Springfield almost seven years earlier. When I heard he had done that, that made it, you know, not the first time he's done it. I'm willing to bet it's not the first time he's done it. Out of the Cold is produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Lee Williams, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.